Chapter Fifteen of Mars Is My Destination by Frank Belknap Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Fifteen. Far back in the twentieth century, when World War II was just coming to a close, the anti-Nazi underground movement had helped quite a few soldiers escape from prison camps, disguised as women. It certainly wasn't a stratagem to be rejected out of hand when your life was at stake. But somehow my masculine pride was affronted by the thought, and I did not take kindly to it. There had to be a lot of male patients' clothes hanging somewhere in the hospital, but how was I to get my hands on a complete outfit if I had to leave the hospital like a thief in the night, just one leap ahead of death in a Wendell police uniform? Stealth? Would that solve it? If I moved very cautiously at first, putting the thought of what could happen out of my mind and trying to find a room where clothes were hanging? No, I couldn't afford to move too cautiously. I'd have to move fast and boldly, trusting to blind luck to protect me. But the clothes problem still remained, and unless I could solve it, she solved it for me. I didn't know that at first, and neither did she. I mean, she had no idea when she came back into the room that any such problem would confront her. All she saw was Glacial Stare lying slumped against the wall, his jaw sagging, and the patient she left flat on his back a short while before, standing in the middle of the room with his inpatient garment twisted grotesquely about his bony, knobby knees, and looking one hell of a mess. It's always been hard for me to understand how a woman can find the angular, bony body of a man attractive, especially when it's in a state of half-undress. But there's no explaining the mystery of sex, and I'll give her this much. She didn't give me a second glance for a moment. She had eyes only for glacial stare. She stood staring down at him with all the blood draining from her face, as if she'd never seen a dead man before or a man as close to death as Glacial Stare seemed to be. I saw the scream coming just in time. I stepped in front of her and clamped my hand over her mouth, drawing her close to me and keeping a tight grip on her shoulder to prevent her from breaking away from me and making a dash for the door. I couldn't blame her for being scared or feeling, as she obviously did, that I was responsible for the terrible state Glacial Stare was in. And whatever Joan had told her about me and despite everything she'd told the doctor, she'd been a nurse long enough to know that even a woman who has been married to a man for many years can never be sure he won't develop some odd, wild quirk of character which will turn him into a murderer overnight. And that's even more true of a hospital patient who has been close to death and running a fever and may still be in an irresponsible state, his reason undermined by the suffering he's undergone. And she was completely right about one thing. I was entirely responsible for the terrible state Glacial Stare was in. Only, there had been a reason for the violence I had unleashed against him, and I wanted her to hear the full story as quickly as possible, so that she would calm down and become a responsible person again herself. Hysteria is a woman's worst enemy, and a man's too, for that matter. But since it's ten times as common in women as in men, it's a very special problem which every man should know how to deal with. I was no expert at it, but she helped me by listening to what I had to say in my own defense, as if her life depended on it. 
and when I was through, she seemed to agree with me that if someone had put an ether cone over Glacial Stare's face in his sleep and relieved him of life's burdens in a painless, merciful way, they would have been doing humanity a service. It's not right to feel that way, she said. It makes you wonder about yourself when you think you'd like to see someone who's that ruthless removed from a world that has too many merciless people in it. But I guess everyone who isn't that way thinks about it at times. I did more than think about it, I said. But in the main, I battered him unconscious just to give myself a one in ten chance of staying alive. The odds against me have shrunk a little, but not much. Unless I can get out of here fast. You can, she breathed. I'll help you. No one will try to stop us if we make it look as if I was just walking with you to the end of the corridor and back. We get patients right out of bed after minor surgery to keep them from losing their strength. It's the best way. Minor surgery? You mean... Nurse Cherubim nodded. They didn't have to probe to get the dart out. It didn't go deep into your back. It was the poison that made you so ill. The dart struck a bone, and that jammed the poison mechanism. The dart splintered just a little, but not enough poison got into your bloodstream to kill you. But you ran a fever, and once or twice I was really frightened, because your pulse started fluttering, and you almost stopped breathing. Good God! I looked at her, wondering. If I was that close to death, how could my strength have come back so fast? I don't feel too good right now, but I had enough strength when I crashed into him to drag him from the chair, lift him up, and slam him back against the wall. She nodded. Even a dying man can do that sometimes, if he's threatened in a violent enough way and desperately wants to stay alive. But you weren't that weak, and you're not going to die. You've got more strength right now than you realize, and you'll get stronger, not weaker. After minor surgery, the post-operative shock is usually minor, too. And the fever didn't last long enough to seriously weaken you. The last blood test was good. No poison. Not even a millionth of a cc. You perspired freely, and that helped to save your life. All right, I said. That's good news. Just the fact that you're the only one who knows what would happen if I don't get out of here fast would be better news. The best there is. Except that... I shook my head and looked past her toward the door. What good would a walk up the corridor do me if there's a Wendell agent stationed at the end of it? A doctor might be taken in, but a Wendell agent would wonder why a nurse was helping me to keep my strength up when I could answer questions better flat on my back. He'd come right back into this room with us to find out what happened. There are no Wendell agents anywhere in the hospital, she said. The hospital would have put up a fight if a Wendell police officer had insisted on questioning you, as he did, in private. It would have been a losing battle, and we couldn't have held out for very long. By tomorrow, an armed guard would have demanded that you be released in Wendell custody, and you can't run a hospital in the colony if you defy the Wendell police to that extent. I stared at her, amazed. Then how did he get in here to see me? It was then that she exploded the bombshell. If the Wendell Combine, with all of its socio-political power, came here in the person of just one man and threatened to make full use of that power if he was not allowed to talk to you in strict privacy, and that man was Henry Wendell himself, she shrugged, 
glancing steadily for a moment at the slumped form of glacial stare with just an uncanny silence hovering over him no trace now of the power aura that must have made hundreds of the yes-men turn pale and snap to attention at various times in the past if the look he'd trained on me was ingrained and habitual with him and i rather thought it was mr big himself and i'd banged him around without knowing without even suspecting that i was slamming the window power combine back against a hospital room wall all the immense height and depth and weight of it the big atomic transmission lines the towering black turbines the boa constrictor coils that snaked in all directions through the center of the colony the war too the wolf-eat-wolf -wolf war that was being waged with endicott fuel and the demoralization that was sounding taps over graves that hadn't been dug yet but would bear the wendell trademark the lawful authority that the silver bird had conferred on me would have given me the right to act as his executioner then and there but you can't solve problems that way and hope to gain by it because there are always other mr biggs waiting to step into the shoes of the mr big you've taken care of in behalf of the common wheel with more cocksureness than you've any right to exercise when you cut off the head of that kind of boa constrictor and leave the big coils intact the new head may be twice or three times as dangerous that he had come to the hospital alone completely unguarded would have been hard to believe if i hadn't remembered that an attempt had been made to blast the skyship apart in space solely because wendell wanted me out of the way i was sure of that now and if he wanted me dead that bad safeguarding his person would probably have seemed of minor importance to him it could be waived an inconsequential detail i had to be questioned and then killed and he was the best man for the job he could trust no one else to handle it as well the joker was he had botched it there were a lot more questions i wanted to ask nurse cherubim but there just wasn't time for them we'd wasted four or five minutes already just discussing the state of my health and at any moment someone might come through the door who would refuse to let me leave when he saw what i'd done to wendell it wouldn't have to be a wendell agent no doctor who wasn't keen about committing suicide would have let me go until wendell came to and our two stories could be compared i didn't have the silver bird to back up my story and when wendell came to he'd simply step to a telecommunicator and the hospital would be swarming with Wendell agents before I could hope to win any converts. The fact that he'd come to visit me unguarded didn't mean he'd placed himself in any real jeopardy. In his book, at least. He couldn't have known I'd knock him out cold, and even if the hospital was located fifteen miles from the colony, it wouldn't take the Wendell police long to get to him. Ten or twelve minutes, at most. Perhaps they were already on the way. It stood to reason. He'd hurried himself and arrived ahead of them, but he'd wanted them to be there as soon as he killed me, to dump my body on a stretcher and carry it out under guard. When he killed me, God, how easy it was to overlook the most vital things. I hadn't even searched him. If he had a weapon on him, I could certainly use it, for nothing can boost your morale quite so much when your life is at stake as the firm, cool feel of an atomic handgun against your palm. I was starting toward him when Nurse Cherubim said, Stay here and keep the door locked until I come back. I'll tap three times. 
I've got to get you some clothes. I nodded, feeling overwhelmingly grateful, tempted to take another minute, precious as every minute was, to tell her how wonderful I thought her. She seemed to know without my saying a word, for her wide mouth smiled a little, and she was gone. I stepped to the door and locked it, and then returned across the room and bent over Mr. Big. I found the weapon, but I had to roll him over to get at it, because it was in a holster at his hip. His body was a dead weight, but when I got the weapon free, he stirred a little and groaned. I clouded him on the jaw, and he stopped groaning. Brutal? You bet it was. But I couldn't afford to take any chances on his coming, too. What would you have done? If I'd killed him right then and there, the board would not have censored me. I was sure of that. Not to have done so was perhaps foolish, a weakness in me. I was cutting down my chances of getting as far as the colony before a security alert went out, and the window police started after me with instructions to blast me down on sight. But somehow I couldn't do it, not only for the reasons I've mentioned, because a new head on the Wendell Boa constrictor would have solved nothing, but because it went against the grain. I'd have had a feeling of guilt I never could have completely thrown off. He'd intended to kill me, all right, no doubt of that, but I couldn't return the compliment in the same coin. It made no sense, perhaps, but that's the way it was. The weapon pleased me. It was an atomic handgun that had cost a small fortune to construct. Intricate, extremely compact, the latest model, the finest, the best. Fortunately, I knew a great deal about such weapons, because unusual type firearms have always fascinated me. This one I was sure I could aim and fire with accuracy, even though some of the precision gadgetry was new to me. $25,000 at least that gun had set Henry Wendell back. But what was 25000 to a man with a fortune of eight or ten billion? It seemed tragic and a pity that all that money should have been spent on a weapon that would pass out of his hands into the possession of a man unfriendly to him. But it didn't sadden me too much, and I felt even less sad when I'd unbuckled the holster also, strapped it to my own hip, and thrust the handgun back into it. She knocked three times, as she'd promised, and came in with some clothes that some poor devil in another room would never live to put on again. She told me as much while I was taking off my one-piece, inpatient garment. Cancer, she said. They're keeping him under sedation. You think you're in trouble, that the game is hardly worth a candle, until you see something like that. Then you realize how lucky you are just to be alive. You don't have to tell me, I said. I've often thought along those lines. She wasn't embarrassed when I stood for a moment stark naked before her, as most nurses aren't. I wasn't particularly embarrassed either, because right at that moment I had no more sex awareness than a totem pole. The clothes were a little small for me. But I had a feeling that in the colony, not too much attention was paid to the way clothes fitted you, or failed to fit. In a pioneering society, ill-fitting clothes are accepted as an indication that you are a rough and tumble sort of guy, know your way around, and are, for good measure, an old-timer, with early settler prestige. There were two more questions I had to ask her before I became a babe-in-the-woods kind of grown man on Mars, 
with just the handgun and a few highly trained areas of native intelligence to protect me. If I succeeded in getting out of the hospital alive, it was still a very big if, but the questions were just as vital and were directly tied in with it. Just how far was the hospital from the colony? And what was she going to tell Joan to keep her from succumbing to panic when my darling wanted to know what had become of me? Before we left the room, she answered the second question reassuringly. It had been weighing so heavily on my mind, I had been afraid to even let myself bring it right out into the open and face it squarely. Mr. Big hadn't even mentioned Joan in the ugly little talk I'd had with him. And if she was still somewhere in the hospital, I had a feeling he'd have used her nearness as one more way of tightening the thumbscrew. I'd been right about that, apparently. She had a talk with Commander Littlefield on the telecommunicator, Nurse Cherubim said. He advised her to return to the Mars rocket a few hours ago. He wanted to talk to her, said it was urgent, and promised to check on your progress report every half hour. She left in one of the outgoing ambulances. She told me she'd be back just as soon as you regained consciousness. It's a very short trip in an ambulance. The hospital is only eight miles from the colony. So that answered my first question, too, but only in part. If there was just a waste of blowing sand outside, it would certainly cut down my chances. But there had to be a firm-packed road for the ambulances to travel over, didn't there? No, she said, answering me in full a half-minute later, when the door of the hospital room had been firmly closed behind us, and we were committed to the big risk, and there could be no turning back. She paused an instant to urge me to be cautious, to stagger a little, and grip her arm for support, and try to look in all respects like a patient taking his first uncertain walk after a minor operation. I didn't have to worry about looking pale, but when she went on and explained what she had meant by the no, relief swept over me, and probably marred a little the impression it was important to give anyone who chanced to glance our way. There's no desert to cross, she said. It's all built up. You'll be passing between high stone walls with massive metal grills set deep in the stone most of the time, with here and there a gap and a few scattered prefabs occupied by aerator system workers and their families. So that was it. I knew all about the Martian aerator system and the big turbines that pumped oxygen out over the colony. So much oxygen, under such stabilized pressure, that it stayed in equilibrium and didn't fly off into space, even under the light gravity. Even without the aerators, there was enough oxygen in the thin Martian atmosphere to enable a man to stay alive for a short period, if he didn't mind going about with his shoulders bent, gasping for breath and turning blue at intervals. His cheeks, anyway, with the veins in his forehead standing out like whipcords. The first colonists, as everyone knows, went about with oxygen tanks strapped to their backs and took a whiff or two of the stuff in earth-atmosphere concentration through a flexible metal tube whenever their lungs started burning. And inside the early prefabs, of course, there were miniature aerator systems which made living indoors as comfortable as it was earthside. But the big aerator system had completely eliminated the need, a health-hazard diminishing need at best and never actually mandatory of the huge glass dome which imaginative science writers in the first three decades of the space age had predicted as a must for successful Martian colonization. 
There are seldom any musts when science advances in seven-league boots and you're right on the scene in person, breathing in a planet's atmosphere for yourself, and finding out that there just happens to be a little more oxygen in it than precision instruments on Earth had led you to anticipate. It wasn't a precision instrument of any kind I was needing right at the moment, even to reassure me about my heartbeat. I knew exactly how fast it was beating. Much too fast. We passed a doctor in a smock so spotless it didn't seem as if he could have been wearing it for longer than a few minutes. But the look of quick suspicion he trained on us was ageless, the kind of look that comes into the eyes of a trained professional man when he can't be quite sure that a subordinate is doing the wise thing. What right had the nurse to take me for a walk along the corridor when I looked that close to caving in? I feared for an instant I was overdoing the act. But when the suspicion faded and he went past us along the corridor, I breathed more freely again. We passed a nurse who didn't even glance at us, and another, blonde and pert-nosed, who smiled and nodded, just as if we were old friends. I wondered what she saw in me. Then we were standing before an elevator at the end of the corridor, and the red down light came on, because Nurse Cherubin had pressed the down button, and she was urging me to be cautious for the second time. We're going down three flights to the admitting ward, she said. She smiled, as if she suddenly remembered there's nothing like a touch of levity to relieve strain, even if it has to be forced. But don't let that dishearten you. Patients are discharged from the admitting ward, too. It's not quite as long as this corridor, but it will be busier. Patients, nurses, at least three doctors. We'll just walk right through as if we had every right to be there. Just outside the emergency exit, a few steps further on, there's a driveway which curves around behind the hospital. Ambulances with accident victims use it, but there's not likely to be an ambulance standing there. You go down a narrow flight of stairs to get to it. Is that clear? I nodded. What do I do then? You just follow the driveway until it forks, and the left turn will take you into the clearaway between the aerators, which leads directly to the colony. You won't have to pass in front of the hospital at all. Ambulances may pass you before you get to the colony, but you won't be stopped and questioned. They'll think you're one of the aerator system workers. I had an impulse to give her a hug and tell her I loved her, quite sure that she'd know what I meant, even if I did it inside the elevator where it would have been more an aspect of intimacy. You love people who go all out to help you, and they don't even have to be young and beautiful. But when they are, there's an added warmth somehow. We carried it off better than I dared hope. We descended in the elevator, emerged arm in arm, and walked right through the admitting ward without even glancing at the fifteen or twenty people we had to pass to get to the emergency exit she'd mentioned. A third of them in white. No one stopped or questioned us, and we followed the same nurse-helping-patient routine which had proved its worth on the third floor of the hospital. And then I did hug and kiss her, just once briefly, before I went out through the exit and down the stairs to the driveway. I hoped Joan wouldn't mind if she ever got to hear about it. Goodbye, I said, and thank you. End of chapter 15